You're listening to the Cradled in Hope podcast, where we believe that the hope of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ has the power to heal our hearts after the loss of the baby. It's a pain no mother should have to endure, and we want this podcast to be a safe place for your broken heart to land. Here, we are going to trust God's promise to restore our joy, use our grief for good, and allow us to spend eternity with our babies in heaven. I'm your host, Ashley Obliger. I'm a wife, mom, and follower of Christ clinging to the hope of heaven. My daughter, Bridget, was stillborn at 24 weeks in my first pregnancy in 2014. In her memory, my husband and I started a nonprofit ministry called Bridget's Cradle, and God has given us purpose in our pain, and we've seen beauty come from ashes. Although we wish you didn't have a need to be listening to this podcast, we believe God has a reason for you to be here today. We pray this time would be a source of healing for you as we remember that Jesus cradles us in hope while He cradles our babies in heaven. Though we may grieve, we do not grieve without hope. Welcome to the Cradled in Hope podcast. Hi, friends, and welcome to episode 17 of Cradled in Hope. Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that we send an email out on release day for each episode that includes links to listen and the downloadable PDF that we call the Hope Guide, which is full of scripture, links, and other helpful resources, as well as more information about our guests. If you haven't done so already, go to our website at bridgetscradles.com backslash podcast and sign up for our email list so you can be alerted on the 1st and 15th with a special email. Today, we have Rachel Lewis on our show, and we can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Rachel is a foster, adoptive, and biological mom. She has five babies in heaven, three children in her arms, and one foster child in her heart. She is the founder of Brave Mamas, an online community offering support to thousands of bereaved moms, and she is a well-known contributor to Still Standing Magazine and Pregnancy After Loss Support. She is the author of Unexpecting Real Talk on Pregnancy Loss, a book that she just released last year. We are looking forward to you hearing more about her heart behind the book and hearing her story. Let's jump in right now. Welcome, Rachel. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. It's such a joy. And where are you joining us from? Where do you live? I live across the Puget Sound from Seattle, Washington. And it is just as gray and just as rainy as you always imagine <laughs> Seattle to be. <laughs> and how do you deal with that? Do you like it or is it depressing? Oh, it's depressing. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> it's been a very long winter so far, even though winter only started recently. Lots and lots of rain. I didn't grow up here. My husband did, so he's quite used to it. My children are very used to it. And I was a military kid, so I grew up all over. And I spent quite a bit of time in Hawaii and Georgia. So I'm more of a warm weather, lots of sun kind of person. <laughs> yeah, that's a big difference from Hawaii, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I visited Seattle once and I loved it, but it was for a short visit. I don't know mm -hmm. that I would be able to cope with so many dark and rainy days. I'd probably need one of those, what do you call it? Like the therapy light lamps that yes. you put on. Do you yes. have one of those? <laughs> I I don't. I've considered getting one, but no, I, I don't. And I guess the thing is that keeps us here is like, there's this brief summer that is glorious. 
and beautiful. And, and so there's the mountains right nearby. There's lots of water everywhere. There's a million things to do outside. And so, <laughs> so those couple of months keep all the rest of us here. Yes. I guess. <laughs> you soak them up for sure. Well, Rachel, thank you for joining us. I would love for you to introduce yourself and share a little bit about your motherhood journey. Well, I would say that my journey to motherhood has been complicated. Very little of it has been easy. When I first got pregnant, it was 10 months after my husband and I got married and it was unplanned. And if I'm being honest, and and my daughter knows this, so this wouldn't, she understands all of this, but I didn't feel prepared to be a mother. And I just wanted to go back to being not pregnant. Somehow just for it not to have happened while I was pregnant, that's how I was feeling and just very disconnected. And what was interesting is all growing up, I wanted to have four kids. I wanted to be a mother. The idea of mothering was incredibly important to me. And so my initial reaction to this pregnancy was shocking to my system. Like, who is this person? How did I become this? And so I had a subchorionic hemorrhage at eight weeks and what was interesting uh, about the way other people responded is that I technically hadn't even miscarried yet. And people were already giving me platitudes about miscarriage and loss. So when I hemorrhaged, we went to the doctor. They said I had a 50-50 chance of miscarrying, that there was nothing I could do. But we all know that when you tell a mom there's nothing you could do, she's going to do something anyway. Like she's going to try. So I called into work. I put myself on bed rest and uh, just stayed as still as I could for a whole week until I went into the doctor to see if we had miscarried or not. And we had not. Our daughter was still alive. But during that week, people were already saying, well, it will happen when the timing is right. Or this is just nature's way or God's way of taking care of babies that are unhealthy. And so it was just interesting that the people were already dismissing this pregnancy and I hadn't even lost a baby yet. And so we went on to have a threatened premature labor at 28 weeks. So I was back on bed rest again, really mostly until the end of my pregnancy. And that happened at 36 weeks. And I had a severe amount of pain and nausea. I went to the hospital. They did not catch what was going on. And so they sent me home. And a couple of days later, I went back in. And this time there, it was very obvious that I had preeclampsia and that had turned into severe preeclampsia with HELP syndrome, which as nice as I could put it, is basically your body trying to kill itself because you're pregnant. And so they said, you're going to have this baby today. Her heart rate dropped during my trial of labor at the hospital for eight minutes. It was like in the fifties. And so after that, they were like, we've got to get this baby out right away. And they did had emergency C-section and she lived and I lived even though I left that hospital with PTSD and I didn't recognize that there was something else going on and, and that I had a lot of risk factors for also postpartum depression because I was just a new mom and I didn't know what to expect. And so many people kept saying, well, at least the baby's healthy. That's the only thing that matters. And that kind of discounted my whole experience of like almost losing my life and almost losing my baby's life in the hospital. And so that was sort of the stage that was set for my motherhood. And it was very 
just not what I expected. And I had already known that I'd always wanted to adopt. I figured that out in like middle school, that this is what I wanted to do. And my husband had always been on board. And so we decided that rather than continue to have biological children, because we did not want a repeat of this experience, that we would just go ahead and move forward with adoption. And it was actually right after getting our license for foster care that I found out that I was unexpectedly pregnant again. And I think that because this was unexpected, but also something I had just sort of given up on, the idea of being pregnant again, I just jumped in with two feet. I was over the moon excited. It was the second chance at being excited and embracing a pregnancy I felt like I didn't have. And so for the weeks that we were pregnant, I was so full of joy and happiness. And it was like someone had just plastered a smile on my face and nobody could get it off if they wanted to. And all that changed when I had an episode of severe pain. My coworkers actually peeled me off the floor in the bathroom because I was in so much pain, I could hardly stand. And they took me to the ER and they said, well, we actually can't find the baby. We don't know where the baby is. And this could be a threatened miscarriage or your dates could be off, or this could be an ectopic pregnancy. And so yet again, I was in a situation where they didn't know what was going on with the pregnancy. And I thought, well, I know it worked last time. Last time I prayed a lot. I sang a lot of worship songs. I had uh, support and this is what happened. And then at the end, I got to keep my baby. And of course, if I got pregnant again, God loves this baby as much as he loved the first baby. And so the same thing's going to happen. And so I prayed those prayers and I sang those same worship songs and I did all the things that I thought a faithful person would do. And in the end, my baby was in my fallopian tube and my tube tore. And again, I was rushed into surgery and my OB was able to save my life. She was able to save my fertility, but she was of course unable to save my baby. And that experience felt a lot like spiritual whiplash because I just had this expectation and this I guess this theology of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Like if I do all the right things, then you're going to come through for me and make sure that the people that I love, that they're safe. (laughs) And realizing, no, I'm actually just as vulnerable in this world and the people that I love are just as vulnerable is was sort of terrifying and hard. And I was plunged into a very deep grief. And that was the beginning of a season of a lot of loss. Nine months later, we tried to get pregnant again, and I had a miscarriage at eight weeks. And we had our first foster care placement call. It was going to be a brand new newborn baby girl who was born healthy, and it was guaranteed to go toward adoption, which is unheard of in the foster care world. And we had everything packed and ready to go pick her up from the hospital. And we got a call saying never mind, the social worker changed her mind and picked a different family. And that was just a couple of days before the first anniversary of our loss of our ectopic baby, whom I named Olivia. Just weeks later, we ended up 
meeting our daughter through foster care. And this was joy (laughs) that we were able to meet her and love her. And we fostered her for a year and about a year and a half before we were able to adopt her. And then shortly after adopting her, we we heard about a five-month-old baby boy. And we were not planning on fostering again, but the story of his life and why he was in foster care was so heartbreaking. I felt like I couldn't call myself a Christian and say no in the same sentence. And so we said yes to him. And he lived with us for a year and a half right before we had to return him home. Like he, he would have been... He was almost two when we returned him home and we did not see him for a very long time. For two years, we didn't see him. And during that time of fostering him, we experienced three more losses, first trimester losses. And so it was five back-to-back losses and then the experience of reunifying our foster son, whom we'd gotten very attached to, understandably. And I was just at a very dark place. And my husband was like, I want to keep trying. And I said, no, I think I'm done. I don't think I can handle another loss. My OB had always said, you have to just think if you could handle one more loss. And if that answer is ever no, then you need to stop. And so I was like, I think I'm at that place. And he says, well, I don't think we're done. And so I said, fine, we'll try one more time. And then that's it. And that is when we fell pregnant with our rainbow baby, Eleanor, who is now five. And then to round up our story, when our foster son was four, he needed to be returned to foster care again. They called us. We, of course, said yes. And he moved in and we had him for another two years and then returned him home last, not this past summer, but the summer before. And so we had him for a total of three and a half years. And so anyway, that was a very long explanation of our journey. I apologize. That was so long, but it, again, it's so complicated. And one of my, maybe my least favorite questions of all time is how many kids do you have? <laughs> because <laughs> it's hard to say. I just say, well, I have three in the home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have been through so much, Rachel, so much heartbreak and so much loss and The journey to motherhood, I feel like when we're young girls growing up, we just expect for it to be easy and clear cut and follow this path. And that when we want to get pregnant, we'll get pregnant and babies will live. And so when you start navigating through all of these uncharted waters and experiencing miscarriages, it's so devastating because it's just so contrary to all the dreams and hopes that we had growing up and what we expected motherhood to be like in growing our family. And you brought up your foster children, and I'm really thankful that you did because there's been a few people, I haven't personally fostered children, at least not yet. And I have read some stories and blogs online of families who have experienced grief and loss after returning a a foster child back to their home as they walked through the reunification process that they didn't expect to feel as though they were grieving a child. And it's almost a living death in a way because your heart becomes so connected and they really are your child. You've had them in your home. You've loved them like your own. And then even though it's a wonderful thing to have reunification and have the redemption in their story and for them to go back to their biological parents, there's still grief and loss there. And I don't know if that's talked about enough. Would you 
agree with that? Absolutely. It's sort of a disenfranchised grief because society wants to put foster parents on this pedestal and sort of make us immune to the loss, sort of turn us into heroes of people who are so selfless and we can just give and give and give and it doesn't cost us anything. I don't, I never really understood why that is, but there is this sense of judgment if we get attached. And the interesting thing about that is that the foster system and the way that it's designed sort of goes against all of our biological systems, all of the ways that we are meant to to bond and meant to attach. And I mean, they're trying to, to move foster children less. They're trying to recognize that bonds happen and that they're important. They're trying to recognize that it actually is healthier for the child if the foster parent bonds with them than if they don't, than if they protect their heart and just say, I'm just going to treat you differently than I would treat my own children and love you differently than I would love my own children. So the foster system is trying, but really just the basics of foster care, it just goes against our natural inclination as parents to to love, to bond, to attach. I mean, we're doing all of the bonding activities. We're reading their books at night. We're tucking them in. At least in our case, our child chose to call us mother, mom, and dad, or mommy and daddy. We didn't ask that of our child, but that's what he decided he wanted to do. And for all but four hours a week when they were at visitation, I was mom to him. And so anyway, so that, that bond is real. And when that bond is broken, it's, it is a very real grief. And we all know that you don't have to have death to grieve. If you have a job loss, if you have a divorce, if you were suddenly separated from someone, all of those things can cause grief, even if there was no death that happened. And so I kind of liken it to having a missing child. I know my child is out there somewhere. I don't know if they're safe right now. I don't have a way to contact them and I'm separated from them. And I know that they're living and I can hope that they're well, but I just don't always, I don't know that's true. And anyway, so that, that is a very real grief. Yeah. I've never heard it said that way, but that analogy, just this pit in my stomach as a mother, I can only imagine how horrible of a feeling that would be to know your child is out there, but you don't know how they are and you can't be present and love them. And that is so hard. Yeah. And I think it's true for biological families as well. I mean, that's that same concept of somebody else is raising my child and I'm not in the day-to-day. The biological families have more rights than foster parents do. And there's a lot more potential for them to really know what's going on. But that idea of separation, I think is just as hard, maybe if not more hard for biological families. Yeah, that makes sense. So after you lost your daughter, Olivia, in your ectopic pregnancy, you mentioned to me that your relationship with God really took a direct hit and that you were wrestling and had doubts and were in a season of very deep grief. Do you mind talking more about what that looked like? Yeah. So I think growing up, I had such a strong and untested faith. I had been given the answers of what I should believe all of my life. And that continued. So from my home of origin to going to Bible school and getting degrees in both Bible and theology to then working at a Christian marketing agency, 
And so I was just so inundated in the Christian culture and in these ideas of what I should believe. And then of course, going to church throughout all of that time as well. And so I had never, ever given myself permission to ask what I believe, to ask what I understand from the Bible and to say, actually, I have some questions here. Actually, this doesn't make sense to me. And if I'm honest, initially, that felt very threatening to me. It was not welcome. I did not want to wrestle with these questions. I didn't want to feel doubt. I wanted to feel nothing but comfort from my faith. And I think when people look at other people who are wrestling with doubts, it's easy to look at that person and say, well, maybe they're just being lazy or maybe they're just not being as faithful. At least I previously, that's sort of what I felt. And then walking through this period of doubt, I realized that actually this is taking so much more out of me than if I just went with the status quo. It's requiring me to really dig deep and to ask the questions that are uncomfortable and don't have those easy answers. And I can't wrap any of it up in this beautiful bow. And that feeling can be like, it, it's, it's sort of like feeling untethered in a way. And so, so yeah, I don't want to say that the wrestling process has been easy, but I will say that for me, the wrestling has been worthwhile. And that of the faith that I have and the beliefs that I hold and and the beliefs that I'm still wrestling with and trying to come to terms with, those things are more authentic than it was when I was just following all of the things that other people were saying and repeating to God the things that I thought he wanted to hear versus telling God all of the realness all of the humanity that I had, all of the parts that weren't faithful. And so to be honest about all of that was hard, but also it created a more authentic faith. And I don't think everybody has to go through that. I don't think a loss like this has to mean that somebody needs to go to that depth. For some people, I know that they derive only comfort and only this feeling of being wrapped up and held. And that's a beautiful thing. And so I don't want to tell anybody that they are being inauthentic if that's their experience. But for me, I felt like I had to start wrestling in order for my faith to be true. So there's a C.S. Lewis quote. It's from A Grief Observed. And goes in line with what we're talking about. It says, you never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. And I would say the same for me. I grew up a Christian following Jesus. And once I had my own flesh and blood in heaven and was preparing a funeral for my baby, it was like, wow, my faith really now is real to me. And do I really believe what I have always said to believe because it was a matter of life and death, what I believed at this point. And I felt like if I was going to choose to believe that Bridget was in heaven and I was going to really get to see her again, then I needed to wrestle with and make sure that my Mm -hmm. faith was true Mm -hmm. and that the Bible was true. Because if I was pulling, say, a verse about the fact that heaven is real and that I get to see her again because of Jesus, if I'm going to claim that to be true, then I want to know that the Bible really is the infallible word of God, and then I can turn to it for everything. 
And essentially that kind of led me into this deep path. I guess you could call it apologetics of figuring out. And again, not everyone is going to go into this deep theological wrestling where you feel like you have to have absolute proof in order to believe everything that you believe or believe that the Bible is true. But for me, I feel like I've been walking this out for seven years of really wanting to have the apologetics and the defense of my faith, because if I'm going to choose to believe this and share this hope with other moms, I want to know that it's true. And so essentially, I feel like it all comes down to is Jesus really who he said he was? Did he really do what he said he did? And was he really resurrected from the cross three days later? And we could go into all of that, but just looking at scientific proof, historical proof, and not everybody needs all of that. Obviously, the the definition of faith is having a belief in something that you can't actually see. We can't see God. And that makes faith all the harder for some. I think different personalities have different needs in terms of how much they can rely on that blind faith or how much historical and scientific proof they need for the existence of God and the existence of Jesus and who he said he was. But I think that's very normal to walk through those questions, especially when you've experienced something as devastating and heartbreaking as the loss of a child, to have those big questions and ask those kinds of of things of God. And I do think God wants us to be authentic and vulnerable and tell him what we feel about him or what questions we have or where we're wrestling and all of that. In one of our previous episodes, we talked a lot about where we go with our wrestling really matters. If we turn to the world or to different things, we're going to come out in a different space with our wrestling. But if we turn to God and to the Bible and try to wrestle with him, I think the outcome is a little bit different. How would you say that process has looked over time? Well, I share in my book initially about that hope of heaven and how I experienced that directly after the loss of Olivia in the days right after my surgery. At some point, I had gone to my husband's grandparents' house. I can't even remember why, but I know that they were sort of like taking care of me a little bit. And I was trying to sleep and I was having such a hard time sleeping. That is a hard time when you're grieving because your brain is just like wide open and you have all of this time to think and rather than being so distracted with everything that you you have to do during the course of the day. And so when you're trying to rest, it's hard sometimes to rest our mind as well as rest our body. And as I was trying to sleep and struggling, I had this image come to mind and it was of my grandmother who had passed away several years beforehand. And she was holding Olivia And she was just rocking her in a homely quilt on just this wooden rocker. And that was the first time that the idea of heaven became really personal and intimate. And rather than it being this vast expanse of perfection, which is what we hear quite often when people describe heaven, it's just this huge place and beautiful and lush and God's presence is there. And so it's amazing. But to actually think, okay, my baby is actually being taken care of by my loved one. And if I can't hold my baby, having my grandma hold her is the next best thing. And so for me, that was a different and new image but of heaven, but also very comforting to me. And that image is something that I reflected on that day and in the future of as I was trying to quiet my mind to be able to rest and to go to sleep and that kind of thing. So I think even initially, heaven was a big part of my hope and knowing that I would see her again. I would say as well, people would sometimes say to me, well, at least you have her in heaven. 
And I would have given everything to have had her here on earth first. It's like, yes, I want her in heaven. But before that, I would like her to spend a solid 99 years on earth (laughs) and have a really full life here. And then we can talk about her dying and going to heaven. But, you know, I think all of us mothers, I mean, if given the choice, do we want our baby here on earth or do we want them in heaven here on earth and then heaven? Like we would choose here on earth to be with us and to be, to be alive and, and well. So, so heaven was, I guess, yes, in a sense, comforting, but then also it it didn't take away from the loss of her experience here on earth and the loss of my experience parenting her and all of those memories that we would have had. So when a baby dies in pregnancy, it's not that you just lose the gestation of where they were. It's not that I just lost seven and a half weeks of pregnancy. I lost a lifetime of memories that I was going to make. Just like my first daughter, sometimes I think about like, what if I had miscarried her? What if she had died when I had help syndrome? What if I never got to know the way that she is an amazing artist? Like all of these pieces and facets of her personality and all of these memories that we would have made, I I wouldn't have had any of them had I miscarried eight weeks. I wouldn't have known any of that. And so when I did lose Olivia, I recognized that I wasn't just losing seven weeks of pregnancy. I was losing this person that I would never get to know here on earth. And that was that was devastating and that was hard for me. To go back to your question about wrestling, I found a lot of comfort in Job, the book of Job, and possibly not for the reason people think. When, as Christians, we talk about the book of Job, we usually sort of start and end with, Job saying, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And for those of you who are not, who may be listening and you're not familiar with the book of Job, it is about a very righteous, worthy man who has high standing in society. He's very wealthy and he's faithful to God. And uh, Satan basically takes away everything or most of everything in his life. And it takes away his family as his loss, his status as a father or his role as a father, his wealth, um, his standing in society, and then even eventually his health. And so he's just left in this place of devastation. And the first chapter, it talks about how he didn't charge God with wrongdoing. And then in the second chapter, it talks about how he didn't charge God with wrongdoing. And then in the third chapter, he charges God with wrongdoing. I mean, that's something that the church very rarely talks about. And that started a season of wrestling with Job. His friends had come to comfort him. And for seven days, they were exactly the kind of friends that you hoped that you would have. They were willing to sit in his pain with him and enter into his deep grief and his mourning with him. But after that seven-day period, then they began to have all of the answers about faith, and they refused to entertain the questions. Whereas Job, during the course of this conversation, he is full of questions, even accusations and doubt and misunderstanding and frustration. And so for about 38 chapters, which, I mean, if we're thinking about the real estate in the Bible, 38 chapters is a lot of space in the Bible for God to reserve for wrestling. And then at the end of it, 
God is direct. I'm not going to say he gives off this tone of just being kind and comforting because he's actually really direct with Job, but he shows Job more of who he is at the end of this space of wrestling. So initially, Job responded. He didn't charge God with wrongdoing, but he, at that time, he didn't have a greater understanding of God. But when he entered into this space and he was willing to entertain the questions at the end of it, he knew more of who God was. And he said something, if I were to like sum it up, it would be, I'd heard of you before, but now I know you. And then God gives his harshest words for his friends who are so full of faith and so full of answers and certainty that they wouldn't even consider that they might be wrong. They wouldn't even consider asking those questions of God or of their faith. And so for me, that gave me a huge permission slip, if you will, to say God is comfortable with a journey. He doesn't demand that we are instantaneously transformed or instantaneously fixed or that we are instantaneously faithful and perfect. Like he created humanity. He understands that we go through processes and it's not always this this instant thing, but he's holding space for that. And so I really felt like God was saying, I'm going to be here. Like we can go through this and you can go through this and I'm going to be here with you and through it. And I'm going to be here on the other side of it. And so that was something that I clung to. And then my hope, as I shared with you earlier, I don't feel like I have somehow exited this season of wrestling and trying to figure out some of the answers and then figuring out too what I'm comfortable with not answering, (laughs) just accepting that there is no good answer. I don't know that anyone really does truly because we're humans and we can't understand all of God's ways. His ways are higher than ours and his thoughts are higher than ours. And there's just certain things about the Bible and about heaven even that we cannot know and we have to have faith in, but there's questions that are unanswered. Like For example, there's so much about heaven in the Bible, and I really recommend Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. It's basically all of scripture references into one book. And so I love that book. But even though we know so much about heaven, and to go back to your picture of your grandmother holding Olivia, one of the biggest misconceptions about heaven is that it's this ethereal, very unfamiliar place where spirits are and there's nothing that seems like home. But if you read Randy Alcorn's book and you really dig into scripture, eventually it's going to be this new earth and it's going to be worldly and familiar and like home. God created our hearts to long for that. And so I think heaven will be very homey. But to go back to talking about doubts, even the disciples, the 12 people who saw Jesus in the flesh and witnessed his miracles and walked with him. Even they had doubts. Some of them even denied him because they're human. And that's Mm -hmm. because of sin and because of our own brokenness and because of our limited understanding. It's so normal and okay to ask these questions. And I love that you brought up Job and that you talked about some kind of hidden things that you saw in that book because One of the things that I found when I was studying Job that not many people realize, but he actually talks about stillbirth 
in Job. And so in chapter three, this is the chapter where he's lamenting his birth because he's gone Mm -hmm. through so much suffering as you had already described. He had lost his family and his home and eventually had a disease all over his body and was just going through so much suffering. He was to the place where he was wishing that he was never born. And if you go to verse 11, it says, why did I not perish at birth? Why did I not die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I should be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like an infant who never sees daylight? And when I read that, being a grieving mom, I was just shocked to see that reference and him Mm -hmm. be talking about stillbirth back in those biblical times. Mm -hmm. And essentially, I think what he was saying is just how broken this earth is and how much suffering he had gone through that he wished he never had been born. But it Mm -hmm. kind of brings us back to what you said about your living daughter and how, because you've had all these years with her and you've been able to see how uniquely God created her and all of her interests and her personality and her quirks and all of those things, you can now think about your other babies that are in heaven and all of the things that you're missing out on and that you're grieving because they would have had their own unique personality and their own interests. And I think it kind of brings that perspective back when you have living children, rainbow babies or children that were living before you had a loss, you have all those memories and milestones with them. And I think it's easier to compare and look at the baby that you lost and be like, I am missing out on so much and I'm grieving. Mm And just like you said, even with the hope of heaven, you're still grieving those things. You still wish that you could have had a lifetime on earth and then gotten to spend eternity with them in heaven after living a lifetime on earth. And I think that's the difference of, it says we grieve with hope, but even with hope, we still grieve. And that part is not lost on us, even as Christians. We hope you are enjoying this episode so far. We wanted to take a quick break to tell you about some other hope-filled resources our ministry provides to grieving families. On our website, bridgetscradles.com, you can find many resources on grieving and healing, including memorial ideas, quotes in scripture, blog articles, featured stories, recommended books, and other support organizations. We share ideas on how to navigate difficult days, such as due dates, heaven days, and holidays. We also have a page with ideas on how to care for a friend or family member who has experienced pregnancy loss. In addition, every month I lead free Christ-centered support groups for bereaved moms called Hope Gatherings, both in person and online. You can find a list of upcoming dates and sign up for our next support group on our website. You can also join our private Cradled in Hope Facebook group for grieving moms to find friendship and support. We would be honored to hear your baby's story and be praying for you by name. Lastly, our Pinterest page has beautiful graphics of quotes and scripture from this episode, along with many other resources that you can pin and save. We would also love for you to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us on these three pages, Bridget's Cradles, Cradled in Hope, and my personal page, Ashley Opliger. We'd love for you to follow along and spread the word about the Cradled in Hope podcast. Now let's get back to our episode. I would like for you to share a little bit more. We had talked about that when our child dies, we're still parents and mm-hmm. they're still our children. We're temporarily separated from them until we are reunited with them in heaven. But for the rest of our days on earth, we are going to be grieving and missing them. 
So can you talk about how a mother and a father can still parent a baby after death and create a legacy for their child? Yes, absolutely. So even when I was referencing Job and I said he lost his role as father, that's not entirely true because he didn't really lose it, but society probably didn't recognize it. And like you said, though, we are still able to parent our child, even though it looks so very different than what we ever hoped or what we ever wanted. In researching for my book, I, I came across some research on from somebody who studied grief, a doctor Dennis class. He was trying to understand why, when researching grief, parents of babies who have died, a very specific group, did not come to accept grief the way that, say, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has come to define acceptance. So is almost like this group of bereaved parents of babies kind of turned the idea of what does it look like to move forward with your grief and kind of turned that concept on its head. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is the one who, she came up with the five stages of grief and she actually did that on dying people, not on people who are grieving those who have died. And so, so she had come to define acceptance in a certain way of a dying individual to accept that they were dying. And Dennis Klass, who was actually working with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, he was like, well, actually, in studying this group of individuals, they're continuing their bonds. They've accepted that their child has died, but they aren't relinquishing the role of mother and father. And so I thought that was really interesting because we don't sever the bonds with significant people. And we don't have to sever the bonds in order to move forward with our grief, in order to heal within our grief. And so this sort of sparked this new grief theory called continuing bonds. And that's the idea that even if death has taken away the body of a person and the soul of a person and separated us physically, our role hasn't changed. Our role is still to be that baby's mother or that baby's father, and that we will always be that baby's mother and that baby's father. And attachment theory teaches us that when we have that role, when we have that bond that we've created through pregnancy and in some of the bonds we've even started creating before we even got pregnant with that baby, that attachment theory teaches us that we try to stay close to the people that we are bonded to. and. Death makes that pretty hard to stay close, right? And because physically we can't reach out, but we can still continue to nurture our desire to stay connected with our baby as a way of continuing bonds. And so this can look very personal. I mean, it can look very different, however it feels right to you. But you can do this in, in privately within yourself or within your family. Things that you can do to continue that bond and nurture that relationship would be to name your baby and continue to refer to them by name, to continue to keep some of your baby's things close by, to hold on to those in remembrance, to write your baby letters, Collecting a symbol or animal that you associate with your baby, creating a special place for their things or their ashes, wearing memorial jewelry, planting trees. And so I have a list in my book of lots of different ideas and it's certainly not comprehensive. And then also you can parent in community. You can invite your community to engage in your parenting just like you would if your child were living. If your child were living, you'd probably invite them to your piano recital or to their softball game. And similarly, when our babies have died, we can continue to invite our community, our loved ones to 
honor and recognize that bond and our baby with us. And so that can look like continuing to post on social media about our baby if we want to, if that's something that we're comfortable with. Holding a memorial service and inviting people to attend, sharing our stories, going on a remembrance walk and inviting our loved ones to come with us, inviting them to come to the grave or to celebrate their first birthday, leaving an empty chair at the holiday meal table or lighting a candle during a holiday meal or a family meal. So these are just different ideas of ways that we can do it. So when my husband and I went on a family trip, we went to Mount St. Helens. As I shared, I live in Washington state, but I didn't grow up here. And so learning about Mount St. Helens eruption was never part of my educational process. (laughs) So I knew generally what happened, but I didn't know any of the specifics. And so when we went to Mount St. Helens, I was first struck by the beauty because we went to this lake that was nearby and it was just pristine. The water was clear and beautiful. The whole sides of the lake were just ensconced in these lush, green mountains and kind of peeking out in the distance was Mount St. Helens right over the the ridges of those mountains. And it kind of looked out of place because it looks scarred and it looks brown and it bears the scars of this devastation that happened to it. But this area that's like right next to it was just so beautiful. And then I got closer and I looked into the lake and I peered underneath it and there was a graveyard of trees that had been stripped of their limbs from the eruption, covering the entire bottom of the lake. And I went home and I was like, I'm going to research a little bit more about this eruption. I don't know why I was curious, but I just was. And so I learned that the eruption happened with this landslide that was the largest landslide ever in recorded history. And that exposed the magma to atmospheric pressure and it resulted in an explosion that was nine times the thermonuclear power of all of World War II. So including the atomic bombs. So that is the power of the devastation of this eruption. And that eruption and landslide hit a lake that started a tsunami of water going down the mountain and that actually permanently displaced the lake. It moved the entire location of Spirit Lake. And it actually started new lakes, which is the lake that I was walking around. It started from that devastation. And then mudslides, lava flow. And then at the end, there was a 150 feet deep pile of rubble. And it was like, what do we do with this? How do we even start? Like the devastation was just so enormous. And for me, that felt like a adequate analogy of how I felt after loss because I had this inciting event of losing Olivia and that just caused this eruption of grief that seemed to affect every facet of my life. Nothing was untouched. In the actual eruption, it talks about the force of it. It literally just took the trees, like the limbs right off the trees and then severed the roots And so you just had these long cylinders of tree trunks without any branches or without any roots. And I felt like that. I felt severed. I felt like the roots that held me deep and made my life make sense. I was suddenly just upended from, and I no longer had those roots and I felt untethered like I shared. And so this devastation is terrible and it's tragic. And I felt the same in my life. There's just a pile of rubble around me of 
all of where my grief has touched my postpartum depression that I experienced and, and loss and cumulative recurrent loss. And then I recognized that, okay, now we have to do something about this. Sarah Philpott, who is the author of Love Baby, and I know you've had a previous podcast with her. She asks the question in her book, Love Baby, that I just loved. And it was, we have to turn the question from why to what now? And so I imagine, what did the scientists do with this pile of rubble? I could just imagine them being like, okay, but now we have to do something and now we have to address this. And what's really interesting is that how Mount St. Helens and the area around it overcame this devastation over time was through, there was like little plants that survived the devastation and they made their way up through the rubble and the ashes. And we were literally, it was like beauty from ashes. Literally they're growing up through the ashes and there were some fish that survived in the lakes, shockingly. And there's just a couple species and they were resilient and they grew through the ashes. And that allowed other living creatures and other animals and flora and fauna to come and re-landscape the area and re-inhabit it with life. And the most interesting thing is that species that survived and paved the way for growth, they're called biological legacies. And I loved learning that because I felt like that is how we find beauty through the ashes is to have a legacy and to create a legacy. And it doesn't answer the question why. So if I create something out of my love for my baby and out of my grief for my baby, something that was going to help someone else. Like I blogged, I wrote a book, that kind of thing. Those are my Olivia's legacies. But that doesn't answer the question, why did she die? But it does answer the question, what now? And the other thing I loved about Mount St. Helens is that it gave me hope. Because if a mountain could experience the world's largest landslide and such a huge explosion and a tsunami and floods and mudslides and pyroclastic flow. I mean, if it could survive that level of devastation and still be beautiful, couldn't I do the same? That's so beautiful. I love that analogy. And for God to bring you there and just to witness really the beauty among ashes and that's from a verse in Isaiah. And if it's okay, I'd like to read it. So this is Isaiah 61, three, and it says to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness, instead of mourning the garment of praise, instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's what I love about God, whether it's a devastating volcano eruption, or whether it's the loss of our babies, he does bring about redemption and restoration and beauty from ashes. Going back to the quote that you said, the why versus the what now, it doesn't give us entire peace about why this happened. Because for me personally, from reading scripture, I believe that the, the why is that God didn't want this to happen, that this was a result mm -hmm. of a brokenness and of sin and of death, that I don't believe that Bridget she had to die because of all the purpose that was going to be coming from it, that God right. forced this upon her or something made her die for this reason. But we know that God can bring beauty from ashes and purpose out of pain and that he can turn around what the enemy meant for evil and use it for good. And that's like what you're sharing is bringing about beauty and good and finding those next steps. 
as part of our own healing and showing the worthiness and the value of our baby's life that they, even if they were here for only five weeks, that they were loved, that we have bonded with them and that they're always going to be our babies, that we're always going to be their mom and finding ways to honor them. And I love that you have that list in your book. We also have memorial ideas on our website, but I love that you put tangible ideas in there for moms and and daddies to find ways to honor their baby on Mm -hmm. earth and Mm -hmm. keep that bond and that connection. So would you mind sharing, we've talked about your book, Unexpecting. Would you share more about your book, why you wrote it, what it's about and who it's for? Yes. So as I shared earlier, I had a miscarriage after my loss of Olivia. And that was my first time going through a miscarriage because my experience with Olivia was an ectopic pregnancy. And so that was a very different and dramatic loss. And this miscarriage we caught because they were monitoring my blood work and my hormone levels. And so I learned that I was having a loss for sure from a nurse's call. And all she said was, your numbers are dropping. You're going to miscarry please call us and let us know if you bleed through more than one pad in an hour. And that was my instruction. And that was my care, I guess, of trying to figure out this miscarriage and what was that going to look like? And I just, I had no idea because I hadn't walked this path before. And so I was like, maybe if I walk, that will get things started. I mean, I didn't want to miscarry, but then the idea of being pregnant, but not really being pregnant was awful. And so I wanted to get things going. And so I told my husband, I said, let's just go to the the mall and we'll walk. I mean, I know people say it starts labor. Maybe it'll start a miscarriage or at least help it. And so I did that until I got tired of that. So then we went to Barnes and Noble at the mall and my head was just obviously very focused on my loss and very focused on this miscarriage. And then also seriously wanting to know how I could prepare and what I could do. And so when we went to Barnes & Noble, I was looking for a book that could sort of tell me what to expect and, and how I could care for myself in the midst of this loss. And I found two books that day. One of them, the title insinuated that I just could have not miscarried had I tried. Obviously, I did not read that book. I just kind of wanted to throw it across the aisle if I could. I think the title was something like How Not to Miscarry. And then the second book I found was Taking Charge of Your Fertility. And that is actually an excellent book. And I highly recommend it if you're wanting more information on fertility or infertility. But it didn't have much to do with loss. And also I had already tried to take charge of my fertility. And obviously where where had that gotten me? And so I just sat there at Barnes Noble and I was like, I'm going to write that book someday. I am going to write the book that I need right now that can tell me what to expect from loss, from my body, from my heart, from my mind, from my soul. And that was nine years ago. So very long time ago. And my book just came out in August, but that is the heart of the book. It is what can you expect and how can you prepare and how can you take care of yourself and how can you take care of your loved ones and how can you allow your loved ones to take care of you? And for all of these different aspects, not just your body and not just your soul, but like the entirety of who you are and your life. And so I walk you through loss, the immediate effects of loss. And this is from anywhere from a chemical pregnancy to stillbirth or even an infant child. I tried very hard to make this accessible and helpful no matter what stage your baby was when they died. So what are the immediate effects of loss? And so those first couple chapters 
um, are shorter, a little easier to read, a little less heavy, (laughs) I guess, for that immediate effect of loss. And then I talk about lament. And so then I go deeper into what does it really mean to lament? What does this look like? And then love, how can you grieve within the context of community? And how can you allow your community to love you and serve you well? And then last legacy. So what does this loss look like moving forward? And how can you take it with you? Not leave it behind, but take it with you. And how does it affect your fertility and your family planning choices? And possibly even infertility or not parenting after loss. So like, what does it look like moving forward? And I really felt like it was important that it didn't just reflect my story. There are pieces of my story in this book, but this book is not my story. I had a focus group of more than 150 bereaved parents, men and women, who contributed to the book. And so you're going to see snippets of their story all throughout the text of from any, again, anywhere from chemical pregnancy to infant loss and literally everything in between. So that is the heart of this book. When life doesn't make sense after loss, this book will. Oh, that's beautiful. And you also have a community for grieving moms called Brave Mamas. Would you mind sharing about that? Yes. So I started Brave Mamas, my support group for grieving moms, because I recognized this hole or this empty space where support wasn't happening. And in the baby loss community, we like to label ourselves and put ourselves into different categories. Like I'm a miscarriage mom, or I'm a stillbirth mom, or I'm an infant loss mom. And oftentimes we connect just based on those things. And so for me, my experience was that I was a loss mom. So I was part of a loss support group, but then uh, I wasn't supposed to talk about being pregnant again. But so like you're supposed to go to another group if you want to talk about pregnancy after loss. And, but then I kept going back to the loss group because I kept having losses and I was watching all of these other people that I'd made connections with move on to different groups, like parenting after loss, you know what I'm saying? And so I was losing my community because I was just stuck in this, like, I'm still just a loss mom at this point. And I was like, there needs to be some sort of space where we can all gather together, no matter what our loss is, embrace the fact that there's more that we have in common than what we don't. And that we can embrace the fact that our loss is going to be a part of us moving forward. And there's going to be different parts of that for all of us. So so for some of us, that's going to look like pregnancy after loss and parenting after loss. And for some of us, it doesn't. And so this group is really for any woman who is grieving a child in any capacity. So that could be from infertility to losing or reunifying a foster child to having an adoption fall through, to giving up or or needing to relinquish a child as a biological parent, to having an infant loss, to having a child loss who is an adult. So we have this amazing group of women that are so encouraging and so loving and so supportive. And we kind of come from all walks of life. And this is not to say that this group is going to appeal to everybody. For some people, they really need to be able to just focus on one aspect of their experience and they need to not be triggered by talk of living children. So like there is a place for all of that, but I just recognize there's a place too where as grieving mothers, we can come around each other and support each other even if our losses look different and our lives look different. So that is on Facebook. It is called Brave Mamas. And as an extension of my Facebook page, Rachel Lewis, a speaker and author. 
And so is that how listeners can get connected to you? Yes. So they can uh, read more on my blog, which I started, it's 10 years old now. I started directly after the loss of Olivia. And that's at thelewisnote.com. And you can also get more resources from my book, including you can read the first, the introduction in the first chapter of my book, Unexpecting, at my website, unexpectingbook.com. I also have a free bonus chapter that you can get immediately on the website. And that chapter is how to support a loved one through baby loss. And so I highly recommend this chapter for you as a baby loss parent to get and send to your friends and family. (laughs) Say, here's a primer on how you can support me. And, And you can even highlight the parts that you felt would be really helpful for you as an individual or point those out to your loved ones. But anyway, my book is really addressing bereaved parents. And this bonus chapter is really addressing your support group to help them support you. So you can get that at unexpectingbook.com. And then you can find me on Facebook or on Brave Mamas. And then you can also find me on Instagram at rachel.thelewisnote. Wonderful. And you are so generously giving away two copies of your book. We will post the details of that giveaway on our Facebook and Instagram. So be sure to be following us so you can get those details. Thank you so much, Rachel, for being on today and for sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed being able to share today. Thank you for listening to the Cradled in Hope podcast. We pray that you found hope and healing in today's message. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. New episodes will be shared on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can also find this episode's show notes in a full transcript on our website at bridgetscradles.com backslash podcast. There you can download a free PDF for each episode called the Hope Guide that is filled with notes, scripture, links, discussion questions, and so much more. Be sure to leave your email address so that we can keep you updated on podcast episodes, upcoming support groups, and other hope-filled resources. If you're interested in volunteering or donating to Bridget's Cradles in memory of a baby in heaven, you can find information on our website on how you can get involved and spread hope to other grieving families. One way you can spread hope is by leaving a review of this podcast on iTunes. Consider the two minutes of your time as a way you can personally share this hope with a mom whose heart is broken and needs healing. Thank you so much for listening and sharing. Until next time, we will be praying for you. And remember, as Jesus cradles our babies in heaven, He cradles us in hope. Though we may grieve, we do not grieve without hope. This show is part of the ICT Podcast Network. For more information, visit ictpod.net.